Let's pray together. Father, it is a uh, strange culture that we live in where as a society we celebrate what is the celebration of the birth of your son. And as a society we have a natural uh, low after the high of Christmas as the lights come down, as the Christmas tree comes down. And I pray that today we would not, as your people, experience such a low, but rather be continually lifted up, uh, that Christmas would not be a one-time thing where we look at the incarnation and then get back on with our lives, but rather your word today as we look at Jesus, not as a baby, but as a 12-year-old, we continue to see who our Savior is and the beautiful salvation we've been brought into. We pray that you would speak powerfully through your word and move in our hearts as you do, that you would send your spirit, that we would leave changed, not simply challenged or Uh, going about the normal routine of church on Sunday, but rather we'd have an encounter with the living God and as a result, look more like your son. So we pray in his holy name, amen. Well, every year we take a couple weeks off from whatever series we're walking through to celebrate Advent. Normally, we do that the two weeks before Christmas. This year, as you've noticed, we've done it the week before and the week after, and I'm gonna be very honest with you, I don't remember why we scheduled it this way, but I'm sure it was for a very brilliant reason. I just can't remember it. But nevertheless, we will resume 1 Corinthians next week. We're going to be in Luke 2 today. And when I saw that I was preaching the week after Christmas, I thought, what better text to preach than the text after baby Jesus, right? The only teenage Jesus text that we have. So we'll be in Luke 2. You can open your Bibles, uh, like Dave just read, 41 through 52. This is a unique story in all four of the Gospels. This is the only story that we have of Jesus as a boy in between the Christmas story and his 30, 33-year-old adult ministry. This is the only one that we get, which should kind of clue us into some sort of importance. If you were going to uh, you know, tell someone one story from your childhood, you'd probably give it a little bit of thought. Probably wouldn't just be some random story of, oh, I got lost this one time, right? Probably be some significant story that, you know, brings out who you are, something that you think significantly shapes your life. Now imagine the story, the gospel writers who aren't just writing history, but have intentionality behind everything that they write. Luke includes one story of Jesus. He's not going to just say, here's a random thing that happened. Rather, he's going to show us something very, very significant. And that's what we're going to see today. As we look at this kind of narrative arc, he's going to show who our Savior is and the very salvation that he came to bring. So as you, you know, there's a, there's a narrative arc. So we're going to see today this kind of anxious searching of Mary and Joseph looking for Jesus. They find him at the climax of the story, and there's these misunderstandings as people encounter 12-year-old Jesus, and then we'll see finally kind of the relief of the story, the conclusion of the story, we'll see a patient Savior. So anxious searching, two misunderstandings, and a patient Savior. That's what we're going to see today. Look at verse 41. We'll jump right in. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they, re- as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing uh, him to be in the group, they went 
a day's journey, and then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. We see a lot in this story that's very different from our days. We have to do some explanation here. So the Feast of the Passover, if you've read your Old Testament, you know every time, almost every time, God does this incredible act of redemption, he establishes a feast, something that he wants his people to say, I want you to celebrate this act. I want you to remember who I am. I want you to remember this day in which I delivered you, right? After the Exodus, when they're getting the law, they're also getting these Feast, remember these days when I delivered you, when generations go on and on and on, and those who have physically seen this deliverance are dead and gone. I still want this feast there so that your children and your children's children and so on and so forth, you know, has grandchildren and great-greats go on. They continually remember, this is who our God is, and this is how he delivered us. So there's several, you know, we have this Christmas, Easter, we just did it, right? Every year we celebrate Christmas, why? To remember the incarnation. Every year we celebrate Easter, why? To remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. We do this as well. And so they have these feasts, Israel, all throughout their history. And then by Jesus' day, it's around the first century, the most important feast that's celebrated above all others is the Passover, is this feast that they're going to. And the most devout Jews would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate. Why? Because the temple is there. The most devout would travel to Jerusalem. And so Luke is showing here from the get-go, Mary and Joseph in particular are a faithful, devout family. Okay, They're traveling to Jerusalem, going to the temple, not just once, they go every year at the feast of the Passover. And even more than that, men, Jewish men were required to go, women were not. And so even more, Mary is, is showing her kind of devout pious attitude that she would go and celebrate the Passover in the temple. So they're going, celebrating the Passover. What is the Passover? Think back to Exodus. Israel's been slaves for 400 years from the Egyptians, the most powerful nation in the world. God shows up to deliver them, sends the 10 plagues, and the final plague is I will go through and kill every firstborn child. And there's one way you, O Israel, can avoid this plague. Take a lamb and kill it, and take its blood, and paint it on the doorpost. And as the angel of the Lord goes through, he'll stop at your door and won't go in. He'll see the blood, and he'll pass over your homes, where you get the term Passover. So they're celebrating the deliverance of their nation, the moment of Israel as a nation. It would have been this kind of week-long celebration in Jerusalem, which had about 25,000 people on average, had about 60 to 100,000 extra visitors coming in to celebrate this big feast. And so again, Luke is painting this picture of a devout family going to celebrate this core of who Israel is. Joseph is devout. He's leading his whole family there. Mary is devout. She's going. She doesn't have to, but she does. So they're going. They live in where? Where, where, Where's Jesus growing up? Nazareth. Yeah, not Bethlehem. Nazareth, which is about 80 to 90 miles away from Jerusalem. And so to get there, there's no cars, there's no Uber even. I don't know how they lived, right? They have to walk, okay? So 80, 90 miles, that's, you know, Fort Worth to Waco. You know, if you're in Fort Worth and you're like, I got to see whatever this Chip and Joanna cult thing's all about, I got to go. I got to get to Waco. Or for whatever reason you want to visit Baylor and you go, 
That's about 80, 90 miles, okay? And so no cars, so what do they do? They walk, and typically what they would do is walk in these big caravans with their family or their close friends, their neighbors, right? Why? Because, think of the story of the Good Samaritan, as you'd walk along the highway, if you're by yourself, robbers would jump in. They'd beat you up, they'd steal you, and a priest and a Levite would walk by and not help you, and then a good random stranger will help you, right, and pay for your, you know, Airbnb and say, you know, charge it to my account. Uh, So traveling in groups to prevent the Good Samaritan story, and so they're going. Jesus is 12. Why is that significant? Because 12 is when boys would be introduced into kind of the religious community of Judaism. That's when they would begin their instruction to be brought into the religious community. So again, Luke is, is painting this picture here. They're going. So they go, they travel with this group, they get there, they party, they have their week of, of celebrating, and they leave. Okay, so they're leaving. And as they're leaving, this would have been something obvious. Okay, festival's over. Everybody knows it. Tens of thousands of people are leaving the city. This isn't like a Home Alone 2 airport scene, okay, where Jesus is just like, I'm trying to go home, but and I had to change the batteries in my recording device, and I got on the wrong plane. That's not what's happening here. It's very obvious that everyone would have been leaving, and yet, Luke makes very clear, the boy, Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus, stays behind. Mary and Joseph are not aware. They don't know it. This isn't them being neglectful. I know helicopter parents, this is difficult. because You're just like, how could you not know? Okay, it's very normal in their day. Again, you're traveling with this caravan. You would just expect a relative. You know, they're there. It's obvious we're all leaving. Jesus is 12. He's not two. He would have known, oh, my caravan's leaving. Uncles, aunts, friends would have watched him, right? This is a normal assumption. It's hard for us to grasp, but it is a normal thing back in the day. I read a lot of bad commentators who were like, who hasn't left their kids? You know, give... Mary and Joseph a break, and I was like, how did this get published? This is not at all the point of the story. Uh, my sister just got married two weeks ago, and at the reception, we've got two kids. We watched the one-year-old, because she can't walk yet. The two-year-old, no clue where he was the entire time. But we were being sent videos from cousins and uncles and aunts of him on the dance floor. He was partying, and Claudia and I just got to relax and try and shove food in the one-year-old's face right? Because our families got it. We're not stressed. Similar here with Mary and Joseph. They're not being neglectful, just assuming he's with uh, the family, okay? So they go about 20 miles. They had a two to three day journey back home. They go one day, 20 miles. They would have gathered together at nighttime, okay? We've traveled. We're going to rest here for the night. Looking around, he's not there. He's not there. They collect, you know, family members. They see he's not there, and so they go back to Jerusalem, 20 miles away. I imagine they quickened their pace on the way home. And Luke, again, is painting this picture of now anxious parents. Realize their sons aren't there, is not there. They're a day away, and they go back quickly. They're searching for him everywhere. And after three days of looking, they find him in the temple talking with some teachers. Okay? If this were just a random story, that's where it would end. One time Jesus got lost and then his parents found him, but then he got baptized by John the Baptist, was tempted by the devil, and died on the cross and was right. It would have just, this is where it would end, but that's not where it ends. We see these conversations. So here's the key question What is the point of this story? And I'll be honest, I've heard this taught several times, and 
people are just all over the place. It's either all about Mary and Joseph, again, who hasn't left their kids, give them grace. Look, they're devout. You know, even the best parents in the world mess up every now and then, so you parents can do it, right? I've heard those sermons, not the point. That's fine, and I guess kind of true, but not the point. Or just, you know, genius boy Jesus wowing everybody with his tricks. You know, there's this idea of the teachers not saying anything and Jesus just in there. They're like, you know, what is 68 times 72? And he's like, 3,886. I'm like, what? Okay. Also, not the point. So what is the point of this story? Luke is going to show us something far, far greater. He's actually going to show us the identity of this boy. Who is this 12-year-old boy. So we have this build-up, this story building up, parents anxiously searching, finally finding them. And when they find him, here is when Luke is about to unfold. Who is this Jesus? Who is this baby in the manger earlier in the chapter that the angels declare to the shepherds his glorious coming? Who is this baby that's brought to the temple and these people who've been waiting and praying recognize him and bless him and freak out? Who is this now 12-year-old boy in the temple sitting among the teachers. Look at verse 46. The way Luke is going to reveal his identity is actually through two different sets of people misunderstanding his identity. Through two different people misunderstanding his identity, Luke is going to reveal who is this 12-year-old boy. Verse 46. After three days, again, three days, they found him, Mary and Joseph found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Okay, so the temple in Jesus' day isn't, you know, it's not like Parkway's building where you park and walk in and you're there. Okay, we had Solomon's temple in the Old Testament, these huge, huge building, but that one's completely destroyed by the Babylonians as they're taken into captivity. And then as they return after 70 years, they build this little dinky temple And people who had saw the old one literally cried because it was so unimpressive. But don't worry, because King Herod's going to show up about 400 years later, and he's going to build the temple that was standing in Jesus' day, which was huge and massive and had a massive courtyard that was 500 yards, five football fields long, and about 325 yards wide. So you have your temple in the middle and then this massive courtyard with these walls around it where a lot would happen. You know, business would be conducted See Jesus flipping the tables. He's walking into the temple, into the courtyard, seeing, you know, people buying and selling and all these different things. And he gets real upset, makes a whip and beats people, you know. The fun Jesus stories that we always tell our kids, it's like our first one. Jesus really gets mad if you sell stuff in church, right? So people would conduct business. But one of the main things that the courtyard would be used for is teachers, Pharisees, rabbis teaching their students, Okay, this happens all the time in Jesus' ministry, a lot of the time without us realizing it. An example, Luke 19, Jesus, who's a teacher, a rabbi with his disciples following him, uh, Luke says this, he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. So a lot of the time, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem, this is where he hangs out. This is where he does a lot of his teaching in this massive Courtyard, And so he would teach students, teachers would teach their students, and crowds would gather around a lot of the time and listen in. Think back to Acts when the disciples, after Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit falls, when the disciples are teaching in Acts, where are they teaching? In the temple. Right? They go to this massive courtyard, they're 
preaching, and then the Pharisees arrest them, beat them, say, stop teaching, and they say, we must obey God rather than man. And then they go back to the temple, right, keep teaching. This is a big site for teaching. And again, crowds would gather around and listen in to this kind of teaching and these dialogues. We see stories where the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in his words, and they say, you know, where did you get this authority? And Jesus says, I'll answer your question if you answer my question. John the Baptist, is he from heaven or from man? Is he from God or from man? What do the Pharisees do? They gather together. They say, if we say heaven, he's going to say, why didn't you listen to him? And if we say man, if we say he's from just another random guy, the crowd is going to stone us because they love him, right? So there's this crowd around listening in, and apparently if they don't like your answers, they get real ticked, and they pick up a rock, and they throw it at you, okay? So that's kind of the scene here. Jesus isn't just randomly around some scholars. He's in the midst of these kind of teaching sections of the temple, engaging with the teachers, and the teachers here are Pharisees, scribes, guys we see all throughout the Gospels who are usually, usually the bad guys, like the worst of the worst bad guys, like the main one Jesus fights with bad guys. But in this story, They're not the bad guys. They're just kind of neutral teachers with Jesus. In fact, Luke uses a specific Greek word for the teachers here that he doesn't use anywhere else, almost certainly to show, don't get in your mind this whole Jesus, you know, boy Jesus fighting with the Pharisees just like he will whenever he's later on in his ministry. So Jesus, they find him there engaging with the teachers the teachers of Israel, again, you think of uh, Nicodemus in John 3.10. When Jesus is talking to Nicodemus on the roof at nighttime, he's a Pharisee, but he's a good Pharisee. And he says, Jesus says this, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? So the Pharisees, these are the guys who know their Bible the best. These are the guys who in particular are very, very zealous for the people to know the Bible. Why? Because Rome has come and occupied them and people are losing their tradition and people are getting secularized, if you will. And so the Pharisees are trying to constantly keep people from just drifting into uh, a Greek worldview and stay with their Jewish roots. And so this is who the teachers are, people who are concerned about the scriptures and concerned about the people knowing the scriptures, and particularly ones in Jerusalem would have been, you know, the best of the best, the brightest of the bright. They would have been the kind of the Oxford or Cambridge professors. Jerusalem was the, the, the religious hub of Israel. And so back to the story, Mary and Joseph, they're frantically searching. They finally find him, and he's sitting amongst the Oxford professors there, listening to them and asking them questions, dialoguing with them, which is what teaching in the ancient days would have been like. It's not really this, you be quiet, I'll talk for 40 minutes, and then we'll leave, and then you can talk to me. In their day, teachers and their disciples are constantly dialoguing, okay? And that actually becomes a part of the teaching. Sometimes they will say something to test the teacher or to test the disciple to see what they really know. Again, we see this all the time in Jesus' ministry. Again, the Good Samaritan story, Luke 10 Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test. And he says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, 
and who is my neighbor? And we go and we get the Good Samaritan story, and Jesus asks him, which of the three, the Levite, the priest, or the Samaritan, was the guy's neighbor? And the guy says, the third one, the Samaritan one. He says, yes, you go and do likewise. Now, we have that whole teaching that didn't just, Jesus wasn't like, be quiet, let me tell you a story of the Good Samaritan. That comes up, why? Because a disciple or a lawyer or someone there said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers, he answers back, Jesus answers again. You see that. You see that dialogue. So let that shine light a little bit of what's happening here with a 12-year-old boy sitting with the Oxford professors, the brightest of the bright in Jerusalem. He's not just teaching them, as we often picture, be quiet, I'm a genius, I'm God in the flesh, don't tell anybody. Be quiet, let me teach you. That's not what's happening. They're teaching, and he's beginning to dialogue with them. And as he does, they're starting to realize there's something unique about this boy. There's something unique about this 12-year-old who, by the way, should have just started his studies into the religious community. And all of a sudden, he knows the things of God to such a degree that it's wowing the brightest of the bright. They're standing in awe of this 12-year-old. Again, so he's listening and asking them questions. Jesus is the only time we really see him taking in information. He's actually listening to learn. We have to be careful here not to jump straight to, you know, Jesus is God in a skin suit. He's fully man. He's fully God and fully man. He's in some mysterious way learning, right? Learning and then asking them questions. And then what do we see next? And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. So the teachers must have been asking him questions as well, and he's giving answers again. There's something about the way in which the dialogue, which we don't get here, we just hear about this dialogue that's shedding light. Who is this kid? The brightest of the bright, they're asking, who is this? Where did he get his learning? Again, you see something similar in Acts when these fishermen, the disciples, these uneducated fishermen are getting up and preaching, and what's the reaction of the educated Aren't these fishermen, how do they, where do they get this learning? Jesus, here we see this same reaction. Who is this boy? They're standing in awe. Again, Luke's point is he's, he's peeling back kind of the first layer of his identity. He's prepping us to see there's something different about this boy. He's not just a young prodigy. There's something else. And if you know your Old Testament, you know the promises of the Messiah. Promises like this, Isaiah 11 one and two. And there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, and the spirit of counsel and might, and the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. What Luke is drawing us into is this isn't just an exceptional boy. I'm sure there were tons of exceptional 12-year-olds in Jesus' day. There's something greater happening here, but it's not in this conversation. It's not between Jesus and the teachers. There's one more conversation. There's one more misunderstanding that is central to this story here in Luke 2. Let's look at that second misunderstanding in verse 42. After three days, they found him. Again, this is Mary and Joseph, uh, frantically searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. Now remember, Luke wants you as the reader to feel the stress 
of parents looking for their lost kid. He tells us where all they're searching. They're searching all around, searching all around the temple. And he tells us how long, on purpose, three days. He wants you to feel it. They're frantically looking. And when they finally see him, they're not amazed. They're astonished. And astonished is almost not the best word. There's there's this, uh, astonished in the Greek is this word for kind of anxious, overwhelmed relief. You know, literally imagine losing a kid for three days, finding him that moment of just, okay, there you are. This kind of let down and then fury floods in and all these things. Of, what did you, you know, we're going to see Mary's reaction. Why did you do this? Relief. This is a good thing. Anxious. Okay, there he is. And anger almost. Not the amazement of the teachers. This kind of astonishment. They're not focused on his performance like the teachers were. Rather, what does Mary say? Look at verse 48. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary says three things to him. Son, literally, child. This is a chastising remark. Hey, kid of mine who I carried for nine months. You know, you know the motherly sayings. Child, first thing she says, your father and I have been searching in great distress, literally in pain, in emotional pain. Why have you done this to us? Three things that we see. This is a scolding from Mary. Mary does what every parent in this room would probably do. She's baffled at Jesus' actions. She assumes rightly he knows what he's doing, And she assumes wrongly, at best, he's just being insensitive and considerate. At worst, this is sinful selfishness on his part. And this seems like a normal reaction until until Jesus answers her. What does he say? Look at verse 49. And he, Jesus, said to them, Mary and Joseph, Mary's doing the talking, Joseph is there as well. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. These are the first words we get of Jesus in any gospel. He doesn't talk as a baby. These are the first words we get as a 12-year-old. And it shows in this story, he's the only one with true understanding. He's the only one that's actually seeing clearly. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Jesus' response is three things. You're stressed. Why? Why are you stressed? You shouldn't be. Why are you even looking for me? You should have known where I was. And yes, I'm your child, mom, child, where have you been? Yes, I'm your child. I'm your son, but I'm someone else's son as well. Why were you stressed? You shouldn't be. Why were you looking for me? You shouldn't have been. You should have known where I was. And yes, I'm your child, mother, but I'm someone else's child as well. And here is where we're going to get into the core of what Luke wants us to see. He wants us to see three things. Who Jesus is, the salvation that he brings, and how we, like Mary, misunderstand him. Who Jesus is, the salvation that he brings, and how we, like Mary, misunderstand him. So the first thing, where is Jesus? He's at the temple right? The temple. What is the temple? Temple is meant to be this place where heaven and earth meet, okay? God is transcended. He's in the heavens because of sinfulness. He doesn't dwell on the earth. He doesn't dwell in the garden any longer, but 
We see early in the Old Testament, there's a tabernacle, later a temple, where if you make sacrifices, if you atone for sin, God can dwell in the midst of his people. It's his presence on earth, right? We see in Exodus 40, Moses setting up the tabernacle, and the final uh, piece of that book is the Lord's presence descending into the tabernacle. It's this center of worship. People would go to worship their God, right? God's house. We see this Psalm 23, I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. Psalm 27, David says, this one thing I ask, this only do I seek to dwell in your house, O God, every day of my life. He wants to dwell in the temple. This is this center of worship. And Jesus here says, didn't you know I would be, he doesn't say, didn't you know I would be in the temple? He says, didn't you know I would be in my father's house? Father's house. What does he mean by this? Mary would probably be thinking, yeah, that's where we were going in Nazareth. Here's your father right here next to me, the guy I've been like frantically searching all over the city with. We're going to your father's house. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 not that father, that father. Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? We're used to this because we're Christians. We talk about Jesus as God's son, all these different things. Nobody in Jesus' day would have talked like this. Nobody would have dared talk like this. In fact, Jesus later on in his ministry talks like this and it almost gets him killed. John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him or seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, which almost got him killed, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Nobody would have talked like this. And yet 12-year-old Jesus says, didn't you know? Why are you looking for me? Don't you know that I, would, I must be in my father's house? Again, we're getting to the core of Jesus's identity. Every commentator I read, besides the bad ones, said, uh, you know, this is the high point of Luke 2. It's not the manger. It's right here. Jesus's first words when he actually, Jesus himself, introduces to his readers who he is. He's not just this boy prodigy. He's not just a Messiah that's going to deliver people politically from Rome. He's someone far greater. He's God's son. He's the eternal son, the one that Colossians tells us all things were created through and for and in whom all things hold together. That's who he is, the eternal son of the living God. Mary is anxious, stressed. We're traveling all over looking for you. And Jesus says, you shouldn't shouldn't be. And if you knew who I was, you wouldn't be. You see this misunderstanding revealing who Jesus is. That's who he is, the son of the living God, the eternal God, the son. And then next we see the salvation he came to bring. What did he, what did this son come down to do? Notice the words, I must be in my father's house. I must be in my father's house. This isn't just some sort of wink, wink, messianic clue of here's who I am. This is coming from Jesus' very soul. Look at the intimate language. I must be in my father's house. In his ministry, constantly we see this. Jesus going away from people who need healing, people who need his help, you know, sneaking away, literally, to be alone with the father to pray with the Father. We even see this uh, scene in Mark 1 where the disciples find him. There's a whole city that's looking for healing and things like that. Jesus sneaks away. The disciples find him, and the first words out of the mouth is, what are you, everyone is looking for you. What are you doing? Jesus sneaking alone to be with his Father, continually 
doing this. One of my biggest theological pet peeves, Jeff talked about his theological pet peeves in, uh, on Christmas Eve, here's mine, is when we just you know, put God high up in the abstract, I don't mean us like popular evangelicalism, I mean like the scholars who should know better, the Trinity, we just do the quick math problem. Father-son language, when you see it in the Bible, it's just to help us, you know. We've all got dads and kids, and so it's just to help us, you know, kind of grasp this unknowable God, and it's very abstract. That is so far from Jesus' words here, I must be in my Father's house. Luke is showing here not just his identity, but the salvation that he came to bring, the Jesus, Jesus who must be, with his Father, has come to bring us to the Father. The same Jesus who must be in his Father's house has come to bring you and I into the Father's house for all of eternity. And here again, we talk about this often. This is the difference between Christianity, our religion, and every other religion in the entire world. It's not what you get in salvation. It's who you get. It's not 72 virgins in paradise. It's not nirvana or anything like that. It's perfect fellowship with the living God, eternally knowing and sharing and joyous fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Christianity is not even about the place you get. It's not about what, you know, heaven or hell. When I became, uh, or I shouldn't say when I became a Christian, when I was first told the gospel in my, you know, growing up here, it was, you know, very classic, hey, uh, listen, a place called hell exists and you're going there. Do you not want to go there? You burn forever. And I was like, cool, cool, cool. No, I don't. Uh, what do I need to do? Pray this prayer. Cool. Guess what? Now you get a mansion and a street of gold, and you can probably fly in heaven for all of eternity. I'm like, this is awesome. Okay, cool. I'm a Christian now? Yes, you're a Christian now. Cool. All right. Not Christianity. Christianity is not about a place that you get or don't get. It's about the person that you get. John Piper, in his book, uh, God is the Gospel, pastor in, uh, or I guess former pastor now in Minnesota says this, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this, if you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you have ever had on the earth and with all the food that you've ever liked and with all the leisure, leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures that you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? And here we get to five-year-old Jared. That would have been an important question. I would have said, yeah, isn't that what you just told me as the gospel? And the person saying it, who actually isn't a real person, I guess I just heard this all over the place, would have said, yes. Christianity is not about the place, not ultimately about the place. Heaven exists, hell exists. It's not ultimately about the place. It's about the person or three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, our eternal God. And Jesus here, we're getting at this Jesus who must be in his Father's house, the eternal Son, has come to bring us into something that he has had for all of eternity. You ever think about what's Jesus doing before we get to Luke 2? The eternal Son perfectly sharing in glorious fellowship with the Father and the Spirit for all of eternity, and he's come to bring us into that, that we might taste it. We might experience it for our entire eternal lives. Let me give you three passages to prove it. John 14, this is Jesus talking. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven except through me. What? It doesn't say that. Oh, my goodness. What does he say? No one comes to the Father except through me. What's the goal? To Jesus. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. Not about a place, it's about a person. Galatians 4, after Paul has painted about how we were lost and cut off from God, says this in Galatians 4, 4 through 6, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, Christmas, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem us who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons, as sons and as daughters. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. God sent his son to redeem you. Why? So that you could be adopted. So that you could be brought into the father's family, if you will. You might call God your father. One more. John 14, 1 through 6 is the beginning of the upper room discourse. Jesus prepping his disciples. He's going to go. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Where is Jesus ultimately bringing us, according to Jesus, into the Father's house? Twelve-year-old Jesus must be in the Father's house, and he has come down, taken on flesh, what we just celebrated yesterday, to bring you and I into the Father's house for all of eternity. The eternal God the Son, that's who he is, and what has he come to do to bring us into the glorious fellowship he has had for all of eternity. How ironic in this story that Mary and Joseph are frantically searching for their lost Jesus to bring him home to their family when the very reason for Jesus to step off of his heavenly throne is to search and find his lost people and bring them into his family for all of eternity. How ironic. It's the exact opposite. He's the only one who's never actually been lost. Jesus is fine. He's in his father's house. We're the one that's lost. That's who he is. That's the salvation that he came to bring. And then lastly, how do we, like Mary and like Joseph and like the teachers, misunderstand him? How do we misunderstand who he is? How do we miss this? And the answer is simply, we misunderstand who Jesus is when we read our own selfish desires onto him and make demands of him as a result of what we want. Okay, so Mary and Joseph Sweet people, again, remember, devout, going to the temple every year. These are the, the most pious of the pious in the story, and yet their kid's missing, right? That's cost them emotionally. They're in great pain as a result of this. They're stressed. They look neglectful. There's a reason why so many people misunderstand this story. They look like bad parents. This has probably cost their reputation quite a bit. Everyone in the caravan is like, you didn't bring your kid? Are you kidding me? Right? This has cost them emotionally, and as a result, they misunderstand him. And they say, here's who you are. Here's what you should be doing. Who are you? Child. You're my kid. You should have celebrated with us and left with us. Here's who you are. Here's what you should be doing. You're my kid. You should be going home with us. And this doesn't stop with Mary. We see this all throughout Jesus' ministry. When Peter rightly says, you're the Christ, he steps in it immediately. Why? Jesus says, you're right, that's true, and I'm going to die. And Peter says, no. Peter rebukes Jesus. I wouldn't advise that. 
Peter did, right? Why? Because Peter's saying, here's who you are. You're the Messiah. You're the deliverer. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to deliver us from Rome. We're going to get back to David's day when we're on top of the world. That's who you are. You're David's son. You're the deliverer. Who is there to be delivered from? Rome, right? His desires, his selfish circumstances, reading on to Jesus, and, and as a result, he totally misunderstands him. Jesus has to call him Satan, right? To slap him around and say, you're thinking, what? Like, man, you don't have God's view in mind. Mary does it, Peter does it, and we do it all the time. Here's who you are. Here's what you should be doing, right? Here's who you are. You're my kind of divine butler. Your job is to make my life easy. When they're suffering, what do we say? What's your deal, God? I thought you were in control of everything. Can't you just see that not suffering is better than suffering, right? You're my butler, right? Up there in control of everything. Figure it out, you know? Or you're only loving, our definition of loving. So what does that mean? You accept my lifestyle. Whatever I want to do, you instantly approve because that's what love is, right? Here's who you are. Here's what you should be doing. And what we tend to do is take Jesus like he's a little, I don't know, piece of clay if we were artsy, mold him into whatever image we would like and say, that's Jesus. And therefore, this is how you act. This is who you are. This is how you act. So we see things all, all over the place. You know, you're, you're our Savior, of course. I'll take my get-out-of-hell free card. Who wouldn't take that? You're my Savior. But you're, you know, Lord, not so much. Taking demands on my life and making me not live exactly how I want to live, I don't think so, right? Here's who you are. You're Savior, Lord, not so much. So you will just, you know, take suffering, eternal suffering away from me, but not demand anything on my life. Or you're just a good example, you know, you're, you're an inspiration over here. I'm living my life over here. And when I'm down, I'll look to you. Cool, I'm inspired again. And I go right back to living my life. We see this all the time. It's kind of like a movie that I don't recommend. I always, for some reason, give movie analogies that I don't recommend and because I'm, I'm scared that you're going to go home and be like, Pastor Jared talked about this in his sermon and watch it, and it's not good. So there's a movie called Talladega Nights that I saw a long time ago. Where uh, uh, driver Will Ferrell, Ricky Bobby, is praying to baby Jesus, and his wife says, you know, Jesus did grow up, and he says, I like baby Jesus the best, okay? So I'm going to pray to baby Jesus. And then his friend who's sitting right next to him says, you know, I'd like to picture Jesus wearing a tuxedo t-shirt that says, I want to be formal, but I like to party, because I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party, Okay? And then his son says, I like to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting off evil samurai. Okay? So that, we laugh at that. That is what we do. His is what Jesus is like. Jesus would never do this. right? We mold him however we would like. We mold him in our image. And here Luke is saying, Jesus is saying, it doesn't work like that. I exist. I'm a person. You, I'm not this idea that you can just mold. I'm a person that's always existed, came down 2,000 years ago, ascended. I'm right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. I'm not an idea you can just kind of mold around. It doesn't work like that. Uh, before I got married, I, I've given this analogy before. It's a little embarrassing. Before I got married in my romance, you know, just I'm watching Matthew McConaughey and I'm like, I want that. So I made a list of what the perfect wife would be. You know, I won't, I won't say it because I don't really remember it, but I made the list. Here it is. You know, there were subsections, not really, but it was long. And then I met and fell in love with Claudia, okay, the living real person, Claudia. Now, how ridiculous would it be if I went to Claudia and said, hey, I know we're in love and whatnot, but my list, section 7, subsection B, it says my wife will be this way, you know, 5'3 to 5'5-ish. Five, five Could you 
obey and change, she would say, what? What are you talking about? I'm a person. You can't just like change who I am. You can throw that list in the trash, right? This is what Jesus is saying here. I'm not this idea you can mold. I'm a person. Claudia would say, either marry me or don't, but you can't change who I am. That's exactly what Jesus would say to us. Accept me as your Savior and your Lord or don't, but you can't change me. C.S. Lewis, in his day when the moral example, the, 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 the common thing of the day was, Jesus is a great teacher and a great example. He's not God's son. C.S. Lewis writes this in Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying uh, the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we cannot say. Man who was merely a, ma- a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be uh, a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. You don't have the option of molding Jesus into whoever you want him to be. He already is. Like what Tim Keller says, crown him or kill him, but you can't just like him. Okay? Crown him or kill him, but he is. He is who he is. Don't try and mold him into something that he's not. That'll never work. You'll be anxious and you'll be frustrated like Mary is in this story. And here's the comforting reality to all of us. Who he is is infinitely better than anyone we would ever mold him into. Who he is is infinitely better than any weak savior that we could imagine in our minds or mold him into. When I did meet and fall in love with Claudia, you want to know what I didn't do? I didn't say, you know, this list is perfect and I guess she's close enough. My immediate reaction was, what a joke. What a fool for writing such a ridiculous thing. Please, can I marry and know you for all of this life, right? Instantly, how foolish, how weak this list is. Why? But because, because this list that I made up was my idea of what was best, it assumed I'm fine. You know, I don't need to be challenged or changed or pressed in any way. I'm good. Here's how this other person needs to fall in line, I guess. And then I marry Claudia, and I'm like, whoa, super selfish, uh, real evil, like way more evil than I thought. I would like you to change who I am, right? Jesus, infinitely better. When you meet the Jesus who is, all the false ideas of him, all the weak saviors that you imagine in your mind, all the clay-molded people, you see how weak and how brittle and pointless they are. And you want to, like Lewis says, fall on the ground and worship the Jesus who is He's infinitely better than we could ever mold him, and his salvation is infinitely better than you could ever conceive. He's not here to give you your best life now. He's not even here to give you your best life later, which if we're honest, you know, we make fun of Joel Osteen, but we kind of picture heaven as just like 
the awesome stuff we want here, we get there. We're just too poor to afford it now, but heaven will be awesome even if this life isn't. That's kind of what we imagine. That's also not the point. We get him. We get eternal fellowship with the living God, the inexhaustible joy of him, of knowing him, being brought into this love that the Father, Son, and Spirit have been sharing in for all eternity. Crown him or kill him, you can't change him. You can't change him. So these are the first words in Jesus' gospel, or in, in any of the gospels. Luke wants us to get it right. See who he is. See what he's come to do. And don't misunderstand him. Don't make the same mistake that Mary did. But there's one more piece of the story. Look at verse 51. And he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So finishing off the story, we see these misunderstandings. They don't really get it. Right? They don't, Mary and Joseph don't understand what Jesus is talking about. I have to be in my father's house. But Jesus goes back with them. Mary treasures these things in her heart. She doesn't know what's going on, but this, this idea of treasuring is kind of this idea of keep your eye on. She knows, I don't know what's happening, but something's happening. I need to remember this. I need to keep my eye on this. And a lot of uh, commentators think this is Luke's way of kind of signing that Mary was his source. So Luke was buddies with Paul. He wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus, and he is going around with Luke and with Acts, and he's interviewing people and kind of creating this account. So a lot of people think Mary is actually the one telling him this story, and this is his way of kind of signing it. She's treasured it up in her heart. She didn't understand then. She understands now, and she's telling Luke. And in that final verse, Jesus is increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor. That doesn't mean he's increasing in his godness. That's a way of showing everyone is recognizing the uniqueness of this Boy. And as he grows older and older and older, everyone's recognizing there's something about him, kind of like we see a glimpse of in this story. He's growing in wisdom and favor, even as, as he is fully man growing. But notice this. Jesus, notice in these final verses, Jesus is the only one in this entire story with true understanding. He's the only one that sees rightly. And he could have said, hey, mom, don't call me child. I'm God, right? Check your tone. He could have said that. He doesn't. What does he do? Goes home with them and submits to them. And Luke here is, is showing a bit of the character of our God. Who is Jesus? And Jesus is patient. In the midst of his parents, wrongfully chastising him, misunderstanding who he is, Jesus is patient with them. Mary and Joseph are the most informed human beings on the planet of who Jesus is. They should have known who he is. They had an angel show up to both of them individually and say, this is who your son is. And, you know, virgin birth. I would think, you know, there's something special happening there, right? Wise men showing up, giving gifts, all these different things. They're devout. They should have known what was happening, and yet they don't. They still misunderstand. And when they don't understand him, Jesus still goes with them, still submits to them, and is very, very patient with them. Again, he doesn't say, hey, remember that time an angel showed up to you and said, you will as a virgin, give birth to a son who will become, who will be called son of the most high, and he'll take over a kingdom, and that kingdom will last forever and ever. How about you give me the benefit of the doubt before, you know, speaking to me this way? He doesn't say that. 
goes, submits to them. He's patient with them in the midst of their misunderstanding of who he is. And again, this will continue into his ministry. Is there anyone who puts their foot in their mouth more than the disciples? Constantly misunderstanding who Jesus is. James and John are walking with Jesus, and they're trying to stay in Samaria, and the Samaritans won't let them. And James and John are like, okay, is now the time? Should we call down fire and burn all these guys up? And Jesus is like, what? No. I got to do that. Why? They're thinking this is Elijah on steroids. Elijah calls down fire, burns up the prophets of Baal. They're misunderstanding who he is. Again, Peter, you're going to deliver us from Rome, right? No. Has to rebuke Peter. Peter misunderstanding. Philip, we looked at last week. Philip, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. And Jesus, have I been with you this long? You still don't know who I am. Jesus, continually patient all throughout his ministry with all the people who are misunderstanding. And this should be a comfort to us because the gospel never says, get it right, humans. I'm waiting. Mary, Joseph, disciples, constantly misunderstanding. What's your deal? Get it right. I'm getting a little annoyed with you. I'm getting a little frustrated with you. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, because you can't understand, because I can't understand, he'll come down and he'll get it right on our behalf. Jesus comes down. Why is he there in the first place? What we celebrated yesterday. He comes down to get it right on our behalf. Notice all the descriptors in Hebrews 12 and Philippians 1. He's the founder of our faith and the perfecter of our faith. At what point is that in our hands? It's not he's the founder, we perfect it. He who began a good work in you, Paul tells the Philippians, he will be faithful to bring it to completion. At what point is that in our hands? The gospel doesn't say, hey, quit misunderstanding. How dumb are you? I'm getting annoyed with you. God says, I know who you are. I know the nature of sin. That's why I've made a way for someone to come and get it right, to understand on your behalf in the midst of our misunderstanding of him. As we take those clay images of Jesus and mold them into our image, as we constantly change who he is, he's patient. He's not annoyed. He's patient. Patient with Mary, patient with his disciples, patient with you and I. That's who your God is. He's not a moralist just waiting for you to get it right. He says, I'll make the way. And this Jesus, this 12-year-old, will grow up. He will live the perfect life. He'll go to the cross, take the penalty we deserve, be raised from the dead, defeating sin, ascend at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit will descend. Jesus sends his spirit. And all of a sudden, this barrier of misunderstanding is removed. And these disciples, constantly putting their foot in their mouth, what happens the second Acts begins their preaching on what, who Jesus is. All of a sudden, they understand. We don't have the bumbling dummies that we get in the Gospels. We have someone proclaiming the truth of who he is. That's the disciples and Mary, who's almost certainly telling Luke this account. All of a sudden, she understands and goes and tells him the reality of who her son is, though she didn't understand it when he was 12, understands it now because of what he's done in the gospel. And in a sense, your entire Christian walk, this is what we're going to talk about in theological equipping all next semester, your entire Christian walk is growing deeper in an understanding of who your God is and what he has come to do. It's not becoming a Christian and graduating onto bigger and better things. Rather, it's growing deeper in understanding who he is and the joyous fellowship that you've been brought into. Don't mold him into someone he's not. See who he is, fall on your face, and worship and gladly receive 
who he is and what he has brought you, the house that he's brought you into, the Father's house for all of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you uh, that even as our words fail to describe these incredible things, I I pray that your spirit would make up for where our emotions are far too uh, weak, where our minds are too weak, where we do constantly misunderstand you. Though you have washed us clean, though you have declared us righteous in your son, we still wrestle. We're simultaneously justified yet a sinner. We still misunderstand who your son is. Our selfishness still rears its ugly head and molds you into someone that you're not. I pray that you would uproot that by your spirit's power, that we would every single day of our life see the glorious beauty of your son. And we would love him more and know him more and not get more of him, but he gets more of us, that you would remove the sin that turns our eyes away from him so often and that we would see the glorious reality that we've been brought into fellowship with you. We don't call you God trembling. We boldly approach your throne because you are our father. You've adopted us into your family by sending the eternal son. You've made us sons and daughters by grace. I pray that that would not be just a doctrine we keep in our brains, but something that is the very heartbeat of our lives, that that's something that your spirit stamps on the core of who we are, that that would even be a mark of this church. These would be a people who, above all else, know and love and trust and cherish your son. We pray in his holy and beautiful name. Amen.